This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. Okay, so welcome everyone. It's really nice to be back here at IMSB and um, to see so many people. And since this is the first talk in this series, um, I am going to give a talk on the foundation and framework of Buddhist practice. Um, Who knows what that is? Go ahead, say it. Sila. Sila. So, um, just because it's the first in the series doesn't mean that it's not important or as important as any other part of the practice or the talks that are going to be coming your way over the next few weeks. So, um, Buddhism is filled with all sorts of lists, right? There's a list of this and a list of that. And a sila fits into one of these lists. It's like the three legs of Buddhism are sila, samadhi, meditation, and panya, wisdom. So uh, without one of those legs, the chair wobbles and isn't very stable. So sila in English might be translated as virtue, you know, living with virtue. And that's a beautiful word, but a lot of people find it sort of um, fussy. And I like, to, I like to use the word integrity. Uh, I think of sila as uh, living in integrity with our deepest core values. So most of us here in the West are drawn to uh, Buddhism because... Uh, we want to learn how to meditate. How many of you came to bo- uh, this practice because you wanted to learn how to meditate? So look around or keep your hands up and just look around. See, this is, this is very true, and this is what we think Buddhism is. And this is normal because we're new, we come to it, and we think, oh, well, Buddhists meditate. And that's what, that's what Buddhism is. But if you think about how much time you spend meditating and how much time you spend just in your day-to-day life, you'll see that there's a lot more time that we spend in our day-to-day life than there is meditating until our day-to-day life becomes a meditation. But the point that I want to make is that... um, we give a lot of attention to learning how to meditate. And we, we don't think so much about what kind of qualities we could cultivate or we could be or should be or ought to be. Maybe I shouldn't should on myself here. But that we, that we could um, be thinking about cultivating. So... Um, The reason that uh, (coughs) the Buddha gave us this path of sila and the precepts to follow, uh, first of all, let me talk about what the precepts are. There are five precepts, another list, and um, lay people, lay practitioners, are encouraged to take these precepts to heart and uh, put them into practice in their day-to-day experience. There are also the first five precepts for the monastic um, uh, uh, code of conduct, the the vinya that the monks follow, and it's the same for the nuns. Although uh, the monks have 225 rules that they follow, and for nuns it's over 300. So you poor women have to work even harder than than the rest of us. Um, So the first precept is the precept of refraining from taking life or harming others through aggression. And um, 
what I should say before I go through the precepts is that they're guidelines, they're sort of training, uh, training rules. And it's not like if you fail uh, to follow one of these things that you have committed a sin or you've done anything like that. It's simply when we follow these precepts, when they become part of our lives, part of what we pay attention to, um, we begin to see that things shift and change. And I'll, and I'll talk a little bit later on how we begin to perceive these changes. But the first precept is to refrain from taking life or harming others through aggression. It's ahimsa, nonviolence. It's a beautiful precept. I can remember um, I'm, I spent some time in Burma uh, practicing as a monastic, and I, I remember reading a non-Buddhist book there. And uh, something struck me in the book because the author made a statement that uh, you could take up any spiritual practice, any spiritual practice, and if you dedicated your, your attention and your life to that, um, and you were absolutely consistent, that practice would take you all the way to Nibbana, to liberation, freedom from suffering. And I thought, wow, well, that's an interesting idea. So, um, I, you know, I didn't, really, uh, I didn't really ever think that that was possible. And I should also say that he, he said... And you will see that as soon as you make the commitment to take this practice up, that it's not long before life gets in the way and will derail your effort. So <laughs> so I thought, well, that's interesting. I'm going to see what, what I can... And here I'm living in a monastery, everything. So it's like a, a deva realm, a heaven realm. You know, everyone's... <laughs> Wonderful. At least it looked like everyone was <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> and my mind was churning. And there were snakes and scorpions, and you know the, the food wasn't as up to the standards I was used to, and so on and so forth. And I realized that I was actually, with my thinking, doing harm. It was a kind of violence that I had never actually considered before. So I took up this practice of of ahimsa to look at it in an internal way and to practice that um, with some degree of of continuity and and, uh, intention uh, really did began begin to show me things that I had never seen before. Now, ask me if I was able to do that in a continuous, unbroken way. And since I'm a honest guy, I will tell you, I did my best, and I would I would fail, but then I would start and continue until I messed up again, and then I would start and continue again. So, so. Non, non-violence. The second precept is that we resolve to be honest, not to steal, not to take what hasn't been offered. The third precept is that we respect our relationships in terms of our sexuality. We don't use our sexuality in harmful ways. We don't hurt other people with our sexuality or uh, misuse it and hurt ourselves. We are careful with our speech. We, we learn to, to uh, be sensitive to when we're starting to go down the path of, of, you know, a little bit of irritability, and then we start gossiping about someone or directing the conversation so that people will sort of pick up our irritability and agree with us so that another person is not as nice as... <laughs> as they might actually be. And so we don't lie or gossip or disparage other people. At least that's, that's a, a sort of a standard that we hold for ourselves. And then the fifth precept is the precept to um, uh, 
relinquish the use of intoxicants that will cloud our judgment and make us um, more likely to break the first four precepts. So um, what that means for monastics is no intoxicants at all, no um, alcohol, no drugs, nothing like that. For lay people, some lay people follow that, but uh, many people don't. And so the, the, what a lot of people do is they learn to uh, use um, uh, alcohol, for instance, wine, go out for a meal. They use it in moderation so that it doesn't affect their judgment or that it affects it very little. <laughs> so, so one can decide for, this, from themse- for themselves excuse me, um, how to practice with these precepts. Now, I, I'm going to tell you, when I started to meditate myself, and I've been meditating now for a couple of decades or more, I didn't really even know there were precepts until I was into the meditation for, or into the practice for uh, some time. And even then, I thought that precepts were something that people took when they went on retreat. Most retreats are open, and they'll go through the precepts, and, and that's, that's what I thought. It was never anything that I took really seriously, you see. But when, <clears throat> when I actually started to uh, examine what the purpose of the precepts were, I realized that a lot of the agitation that I encountered in my own mind when I would go on retreat or when I tried to meditate on my own uh, at home, that a lot of that agitation was the direct result of not paying attention to the precepts. You see, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't as, I didn't think of myself as a gossip or we don't think of ourselves in that way. But when I began to see, oh, you know, I didn't really need to say that. Uh, why, why did I say this when I asked myself this question? And then when I started to become a little bit more careful, um, I realized, you know, wow, I could use my speech in a much more skillful way, or I could use speech in a much more skillful way. And one of the ways that I learned this was after the first one-month retreat that I did, and we were breaking silence after this long, silent retreat, and uh, just to see the way people started to come back into language and the way that I came back into the language. And it wasn't that people were lying or anything, but just to see the power of language and how we identify through language and that, I could understand why this is one of the main precepts that we're asked to, um, asked to think about. So practicing any one or all of these are opportunities for training the body and training the mind. And um, <clears throat> uh, it tr- it's a training in how to slow down <clears throat> and apply some sort of restraint to put the brakes on unskillful habits, just like I was giving some examples with the speech. Uh, these habits that propel us towards actions that are really, uh, you know, not not very wholesome, and they're not very skillful, and they generally create conditions for future difficulties when we're not paying attention. These trainings also help us uh, in our relationships with one another. They help us learn how to relate to one another, and and just as importantly, they help us learn how to relate to ourselves in a new, a kind, and, and really a compassionate way. Because when we, when we begin to um, uh, become intimate and completely honest with ourselves, we realize that we're just a human being like the next person. And that sometimes we're nice and sometimes we're not. And sometimes we disappoint 
other people and sometimes we disappoint ourselves and sometimes we do acts of heroism and enormous generosity and love. We're a mix of all of this. And when we can meet ourselves in that way, compassion grows. And, and, and this allows us to be in relationship with ourselves in a new and really beautiful way. So <clears throat> charged emotions and mind states, negative mental states such as anger or depression, etc., um, <clears throat> they, they will show up in us, just like I was saying. We're a combination of everything. But when we begin to practice with these precepts, when we take them seriously, we cultivate some capacity to act and speak with wisdom, with restraint, if we need to if restraint is called for. We need to do this. And part of what happens, people will report, is that um, when they start paying attention like that, and then they fall out of sync with their intention and with these precepts, it, it doesn't feel good. It's not like you're being overwhelmed by remorse and, and you know something like that. But we know that it doesn't feel good. It really doesn't feel good. And so we begin to pay attention to those feelings and nature begins to cooperate with us. So, um, so um, as I started off, Buddhism is made up of many different practices and meditation is one facet of them. Uh, sila is another, and these different aspects work together and give us skillful means. They give us tools for our liberation, literally. So um, when we learn to meditate, when we start to practice um, these, these precepts, living in integrity with these precepts, uh, we see that it's just part of the whole package of Buddhism, and it's, the, uh, it's a foundation for the cultivation of the practice of living with integrity. And this is a key and important part. Because if we're not in integrity with ourselves and with other people, you can be damn well sure that when you sit down to meditate, you will not be in integrity with yourself. And you cannot power through that. You have to see that. And, and generally the way that we see that is we suffer. And then we finally begin to look at, oh, this is what's going on here, you know. So we're taught that we need to keep the precepts in the forefront of our minds. And from my own personal experience and my own personal practice, I can, I can attest to that. When I think about the precepts on a regular basis, I am more likely to pay attention than, than when, when it's just a nice idea that I think about when I go on retreat. And so one of the things that I do is when I sit down to meditate, if I'm sitting down in the morning, or when I sit down to meditate, I will always begin my day's meditation by taking the precepts. I'll take the precepts as a way to sort of set the meditation up. It puts me in a different kind of a, of a framework. It makes me receptive to what I'm about to do. And, and it, it, it helps me connect with that part of my heart that is responsive to those kinds of things. So I find this very useful. So, <clears throat> but there's a a caution for people, and I saw this happen in the monastery all the time. We have to really be careful uh, that we're flexible and willing to practice with these precepts uh, without becoming self-righteous. We can't become like morality police to other people or to ourselves, or we're just going to give ourselves a headache and we're going to annoy a lot of people. And that's not the purpose of them. So, so uh, we, that's just a caution, and it doesn't take a, a, a rocket scientist to figure out when we're, we're, we're doing that. 
Um, <clears throat> so now we know what the precepts are, and we know, uh, you know where they fit in and how they fit in, but what are some of the benefits to keeping the precepts? So... <clears throat> So I'm just going to ask for one or two people, if you want to think, what would you think a benefit of keeping the precepts would be? Since I asked it as a question, Jen. One thing I can think of is that when you refrain from um, talking or speaking of other people in a derogatory way, then people are more likely to trust you and tell you the truth. Did everyone hear that? Yes, it's true. So other people can tr- will trust you. And equally important, you learn that you can trust yourself. So this is a, this is a huge benefit of paying attention. The precepts are meant as refuge of safety for us. They're, they're meant to keep us safe. So... Um, Another immediate uh, benefit is the feeling of well-being, of clarity, and you actually said it here. Well, it's a little bit different. I said it earlier. Freedom from a sense of remorse. You see, so if we're doing things in our lives that really cause us to be remorseful about some action or, or something that we said, um, you know, if we follow the pre precepts, we know that we're going to be free free from remorse because that's just one of the immediate benefits of living with them. So living with integrity allows us to trust ourselves and to be trusted by others. And this this is beautiful. Think about that. Think about that. And think about that Um in a real way, what if, what if you knew that you could trust yourself and you began to sense that other people could trust you because they know you're trustworthy? What, does that, what would that make you feel like? And that lovely good feeling is something to pay attention to, you see? This is one of the, this is one of the ways that we learn to become mindful mindful in our daily life. And that quality of awareness in our daily life can be recognized in our meditative experience as well. That will show up in our meditation as well. So uh, living with integrity also allows us to let down our guards and our defenses to be more real, to be more honest, to be more present, to be more kind and generous. Um, and these defenses and guards are often just fortifications and defenses for like a self-view, um, um, like we're, we're building up a sense of who we are. And that was one of the things that I noticed at the end of that first month retreat when people started talking and I started talking I saw how we used speech to build this identity of who we are and it happened boom so quickly this movement to become you see and in that way you begin to notice speech and you begin to notice the value of paying attention to speech as a precept and, and then it's not like it's wrong. It's just that this is what we do and this leads us into places that are difficult to trouble. And um, just one second. And um, uh, when we can see that, we realize that we have choice. Now, sorry. If, if someone's saying something negative about someone else, well, that's, <clears throat> that comes, how do I do it or how is it done? How is it done? How is it done? Yeah. So I don't have a, a simple answer for that, but I do have an honest answer. And that is um, when, we're, we're, when that is 
what is normal that we're in those those situations and we find that that's happening and we find that we we sort of get sucked into it from time to time it comes with practice it comes with patience and it comes with a lot of kindness and at a certain point it you know we might just not engage or we might you know get up and and leave we don't want to be like uh, uh, like holier than thou or something like that. At a certain point, we just might say, "I don't want to be, I don't want to be part of this conversation because it's hurtful, and it hurts me." And I, I mean, that's not always appropriate, but sometimes it is. Sometimes people will just not; they just won't. And you have to like you. You really have to declare who you are and what your values are. And it's, or it's okay to say what your values are if this is something that I think, I could be wrong, but this is what I find in my own experience. It's okay to say what's real for me or how I think if I don't say that what someone else is doing is wrong or if I'm judging them. If I you see because then that puts them like, why are you gossiping about this person? You know, I can say, this doesn't feel good to me, so I don't want to be part of this conversation and just leave it there. And then other people can decide whether it feels good to them or not. So does that help? Okay. So um so Going back to trust, trust is the foundation, literally, for personal and collective spiritual growth. Without trust, it's not going to happen. And another way to put that, another way of languaging that, if languaging is a word, is that without safety, nothing is possible. And Safety, trust, and the safety that comes from trust is foundational for all personal and collective spiritual growth. So if we don't feel safe, we're not likely to be able to meditate in peace and calm. If we don't feel safe, we're not likely to be able to um, identify and live in integrity with our core values. So we have to have some quality of trust and safety. Safety about our environment and safety in who we are and what we, you know, what we are committed to and what we stand for. And part of that is learning about boundaries, learning what boundaries are and learning how to you know recognize reasonable boundaries and not be all uptight but you know having some flexibility but really you know if people are crossing the boundaries we have a right to say stop <laughs> this is not going to happen any longer and and we have a, a right to say that to ourselves and we we have the freedom to choose so, but first we have to see what's actually happening. And by, by recognizing the value of just paying attention to these five simple training precepts, um, it can transform your life. It certainly will transform your practice. So, <clears throat> another list in Buddhism. They say that there are three types of gifts. So there's the gift of material things, money, dana, service, volunteering. I saw a volunteer chart going around here. This is a gift. This is a gift. The gift of the dhamma, truth, the teachings that guide us to the truth. Learning about the precepts, learning how to meditate, you know, listening to dhamma talks, being part of, of, of like spiritual communities or sanghas, being around like-minded people, kalyanamita, this is spiritual friendship. This is a gift. And then the gift of fearlessness or security. This is a space where people can feel trust and where we don't have to feel defended and on guard, protecting ourselves and our 
points of view and our self-image and so on and so forth. This place, this is beautiful. So the precepts are a foundation for this kind, for creating this kind of space. And um, we experience this quality of trust and fearlessness in our meditation practice. And when we do, it allows us to let go more deeply into our hearts. When we, when we are there, when we feel safe, it allows us to just relax and let go. Now, let go is a loaded word, but I could do a whole talk on letting go, so I'm not, I'm not going to go there. But this quality of what I mean here is when we feel safe, we don't have to guard ourselves. We can just be honest with ourselves. We can relax. We can breathe. Um, <clears throat> and in that state, it becomes easy for us to work with feelings of turmoil, of chaos, of confusion, of anxiety, of fear, of negative emotions, even like anger and jealousy and enmity. It becomes easier for us to be honest that those things are happening. And we, can, we realize that we have some capacity to be with those difficult things and not to just be immediately swept away and down one rabbit hole after another. So um, this feeling of safety gives us an opportunity to practice relinquishing, letting go, putting down. And, and that's what I mean by letting go. And this quality of letting go can be known in a direct sort of energetic way. It feels like... It feels like you're just putting something down. It feels like a sense of freedom. It's a lightning. It feels like a quality of lightning. And um, this is really what Buddhism is all about. It's about letting go. That's what it is. It's about letting go of everything that keeps us confused and in a state of perpetual motion of that is really stressful and filled with suffering. So the, prece- the precepts, these f- simple five precepts, provide the foundation <clears throat> and container for this kind of letting go uh, to become possible. Does this make sense? Does, are you relating to this? Does this make sense? Good. Okay, so this is how practicing with the precepts actually is incorporated and integral to the path of liberation, to the Buddhist path of liberation, and how we weave it into the day-to-day, into our own day-to-day lives in relation to others as well as to ourselves. And this is important. I keep, I keep coming back to this theme. It's not just for others. It's for ourselves. We learn to, to be in a different kind of a relationship with ourselves. So <clears throat> the Buddhist spoke about two interconnected factors that's conducive to right view. One is an internal quality, and the other is an external quality. The internal quality is wise reflection, learning how to see things through bright mindfulness with clear comprehension, this kind of wise reflection. The other, the external quality, are spiritual friends, something that I touched upon a a, a few moments ago. Like-minded people, it's called Kalyanamita. We need a supportive community, just like the one you're sitting in here. We need that. We can't do this on our own. We can try, but the world will not support us. So, so it's important to recognize that within the container of a supportive community, as we take these practices up, we begin to actually look at our life experience and... and live with, uh, from a different um, 
in a different way, I was going to say from a different perspective or a different point of view. But <clears throat> we need people in our lives who are committed, just as committed as us, if not more, to walking the path of liberation. You know? Now, I know Shaila, and I can say I don't know anyone who's more committed to walking that path than Shaila. I know lots of people who are, but you have a great teacher here and a great model. And just to be around someone like that awakens this inspiration in, in one when they allow this to sink in, to see how to do that yourselves. Because the teaching is that we can all do that for ourselves. We are all our own teachers. The teacher will point the way, but we have to do it ourselves. And part of doing it ourselves is, is actually practicing these practices. So <clears throat> we need people who are committed to walking the path, to practicing and upholding the precepts in their own life, to training their mind um, in, a, in a kind and patient and beautiful, gentle way. And um, the realities of the world that we live in and the politics that exist in our country today and the crises of the climate uh, issue and uh, the environmental degradation, all of these things challenge us and can overwhelm us in a heartbeat. And so we can realize that we, or we begin to realize when we have spiritual community, spiritual friends, and we have these practices that begin to open us up to new ways of seeing the world and new ways of being in relationship to ourselves and to one another, we see that we actually can make a difference. We are change agents, and we can begin by changing ourselves. So it really all comes back to how we live our personal day-to-day -day lives. Sometimes we get it right, and other times, no matter how well-intentioned we are, we blow it, right? That's just what it's like to be a human being. So, <clears throat> the, once again, the precepts are an aspect of practice. Uh, an, they're an aspect of virtue and integrity. They, they are not moral injunctions that we're forcing upon ourselves. They're training guidelines. So um, we're simply, when we, when we affirm the, these precepts in our lives, we're simply affirming the intention to undertake them as trainings. And we're practicing to learn how to live in integrity with our intentions. That's, that's what it is. And when we blow it, the way to handle that is to recognize, well, that was a mistake. I'm going to try better the next time. That's the way to handle it. You meet yourself like a good friend. And in that way, you will create a, an environment, an internal environment, a mental and psychological environment of trust and safety. Rather than every time you make a mistake, you just beat the hell out of yourself. This is not the way we, that you train the mind. We think because the world tells us that's the way you do it. But this is not the way that you train the mind. Jack Kornfield <coughs> uh, talks about learning to do mindfulness. Uh, and he uses an example of training a puppy, housebreaking a puppy. And the puppy, you pick the puppy up and you take the puppy to the kitchen where the, it's not a carpet, and you put the puppy on paper and say, here, puppy, you know, pee here. And the puppy looks up at you and wags its tail and runs out <laughs> to the living room and promptly pees on the carpet. <laughs> so he said, you don't go up to the puppy and grab it and beat the heck out of it and slam it down on the paper and say, no, puppy, this is where you do it. You see, you'll never learn to meditate that way. And you'll never learn to trust yourself when that internal voice is, is giving you, playing havoc with you.
So, so we train with and we use the precepts as a standard. We see how they affect us. We see what their benefits are, and we also recognize what their challenges are and so forth. So <clears throat> we begin to explore the function of the precepts and how they work in our direct personal experience. And this isn't meant to be a theoretical exploration. It's a serious investigation into into the ways in which the results of living with the precepts affect us and affect the world that we live in. It's a very serious investigation, you see? So you can see, okay, when, when I am in relationship to the world from this place of integrity, my effect on the world is this. And when I'm out of integrity with myself, I'm in relationship to myself and to the world in a way that's out of integrity. And it just doesn't feel well. When you start practicing, practicing with it, when you're out of integrity, it doesn't feel good. It's like learning and training how to be more empathetic, how to, how to empathize with other people. When, when people know what empathy is and how to train in empathy, when they're out of sync with empathy, it just feels bad. It feels bad. And so they're inclined not, not to do the kinds of things that are not empathetic. So they've been Doing, they've done research, and they show that empathy reduces bullying, for instance. So when somebody can actually not just imagine what you might be thinking and know what your Achilles heel is so they know how to get you, but when the bully actually feels what the distress that they might be causing you, when they actually feel, it feels so terrible that they're likely to not bullies. And they've been doing this research, and so they've been training people. I just gave a talk some time ago, a little while ago, about a couple of months ago, actually, to the Walter Hayes School in um, Palo Alto, to 450K to fifth graders, where the school has as a theme empathy. So they're teaching the kids about empathy which is really beautiful. And part of it is to reduce this kind of, you know, us-them mentality and bullying and so forth and so, so on. Anyway, <clears throat> um, I have five minutes <laughs> and, and several pages more. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I, I just wanted, I'll just end with the one or two more thoughts here. Um, when we train in the precepts, we're training in learning how to understand intention. And the, fra- the precepts themselves become a framework for reflection. They help us reflect back to, they help reflect back to us what's actually going on in us. So if you think about that, it's, it's really, um, in, it sort of spurs you on to want to work with them because it's about Uh, deepening understanding, and it's about deepening your understanding of what your actual intention is. So when you know what your intention is, you're much more likely to um, live in harmony, but you're also much more likely to know what's important to you and where you want to go, how you want to 
point your life, direct your life, how you want to be in relationship with other people, whether you, you want to continue gossiping with the people at work or whether that's not something you want to do. Simple things like that. You, you begin to see. It, it'll help you understand what your intention is. And um, if your intention is to end suffering and be liberated, um, this, is a, this is one way, one very surefire way that you can do it. And for lay people and monastics alike, training in the five precepts creates... Uh, a framework or foundation of trust, clarity, and well-being. And um, they're the standards we need in order to live uh, in safety and harmony in society and in our families and in our work environments and so on and so forth. So um, I encourage all of you to think about these things because they're not... Um, they're not insignificant and they make an enormous difference in our lives and in our practice when we do begin to pay attention to them. And we just think about them a little bit. Um, so I wish you all a, uh, uh, a beautiful investigation of the precepts and may you all live in harmony with your deep intentions. And we have a few minutes, so I want to just say, ask if there are any questions or comments. Please, was that a hand up? Would you just say it a little bit louder? I have a hearing problem. Of, of letting go? Um, Sure, I'll give an example just from the from the question that this other woman asked me. And uh, when, let's say that you're at work and somebody starts to gossip or somebody creates some something that's going to take you in that kind of a direction, you see, you can recognize that. You be you begin to recognize that, and then you can make a conscious choice that you're not going to do that. You're going to refrain from doing that. You're going to let go from the hook that catches you time after time. It doesn't always feel good. It sometimes takes some effort, you see. But letting go could show up in that way. Letting go could show up as like you feel yourself guarded and protected and defensive or something. And you realize that just by being honest with yourself, things will sort of release. And that, that letting go is a kind of release. It's being honest, you see? So uh, what, what most of us do is we overthink these things. If you can just connect with the feeling in your heart, mind, you'll know, the, you know, the body will not trick you. The mind will trick you, but the body won't trick you. Is that helpful? There was another hand I saw. No more questions? One more question. With depression? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's hitting the puppy with the yeah, yeah. So, so, okay. So, great mindfulness. You know that you have a tendency to, to towards depression. You see that this depression is fed by ruminating, running some thought over and over and over again, you see? And then you see that your, your habitual response is not so kind or not so skillful. Did I understand that right? Okay, so that's great mindfulness. Now, so as I said, it's not easy to do this, but letting go 
the clear seeing of that, when one sees that really clearly, um, I'm not going to say through my, I'm going to, you see it through mindfulness, but when you see it really clearly and aren't trying to evade it or avoid it, it's just uh, meeting suffering head on. You see, just meeting it head on. That, that radical, honest act is an act of self-kindness. And, and that recognition of suffering allows the heart to open with compassion. I'll say something that I teach in my compassion course. When love meets suffering in that way, the heart's natural response is compassion, which is a beautiful thing to think about because then we are not responsible for making ourselves be compassionate. All we have to do is learn to be honest with what's going on. And if it's suffering, it's not easy because we're habituated to avoid it, to confront it, to run away from it, to do whatever we're doing, and to try to get rid of it, to antidote it. But it's, it's counterintuitive. We have to see it. And when we see it in a direct way, that's a moment of compassion. And, the, and you can literally, somatically, physiologically feel the heart open, and it'll meet to, and, and the response is the meeting of, 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 or the arising of compassion. That's how I discovered self-compassion. I was in a terrible turmoil, and I, I was using every trick in my meditation tool bag to make the bad feelings go away, and I couldn't all it did was throw uh, gasoline on the fire, you see? So if it was like, de- it wasn't depression for me, it was something else. But if it had been depression, I, it, everything I would do just would make me more depressed, right? Because that's what I was doing. And when I couldn't escape it anymore, when I finally, the universe just took me and rubbed my nose in, in the fact that, this is suffering, wake up, this is suffering. And the moment I realized, oh my God, I'm suffering, this is suffering. In that moment of honest recognition, it was an opening and I felt a release, uh, 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 this movement through me that I recognized as self-compassion for the very first time in my entire life. I knew how to be compassionate with other people, but I didn't have a clue how to do it for myself. So, so now we're a few minutes after nine. So thank you all so much. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.